Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are delighted to speak with Dr. Chinwa Thelwell about his new book entitled Exporting Jim Crow, Blackface Minstrelsy in South Africa and Beyond. The title is currently out with the University of Massachusetts Press. Dr. Thelwell is an associate professor of history and Africana studies at William and Mary, and he teaches courses on Afro-diasporic history, performance studies, post-colonialism, Asian American histories, and hip hop. Chinwa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. It's, It's really good to be here. Well, let's start off with allowing our listeners an opportunity to gain a better understanding of who you are your journey to history and Africana studies, and how you ultimately became a historian. Thank you for that first question. So um, I was born and raised in Massachusetts. My father is Black Jamaican, my mother is Japanese American, and I identify as Afro-Asian. I'm so grateful to my parents because I've learned so much from them. Uh, Today, I'm a professor who studies, among other topics, uh, the social construction of race. And I became interested in the topic of race when I was very young. My mother, uh, Roberta Uno, uh, is an activist scholar uh, who started a theater company called New World Theater. And I grew up up watching anti-racist plays. I learned about theater performance as a form of anti-racist discourse. When I was a child, uh, my mother directed a play by James Baldwin called The Blues for Mr. Charlie. And the play is loosely based on the murder of Emmett Till and the farce of a trial that followed. So one of my earliest childhood memories is an, an image from the play. This, it's an image of a black man trying to walk past a white man on the street. And the white man insults him and won't let him pass. And that image left a really, you know, an an indelible impression on me. And even though I was, you know, I was really young when I saw that play, you know, I I understood the significance of the story. You know, a black man was killed and the white assailant was let free by the court system. And so that was really, you know, that was my first introduction to a kind of Black Lives Matter message decades before the phrase Black Lives Matter was popularized. And um, it's important to note that, of course, Black Lives Matter is responding to a problem that has been going on for generations, right? State-sanctioned violence against Black people. And at at a very early age, I learned that the criminal justice system in the United States is stacked against Black people. And Blues for Mr. Charlie taught me that lesson. And uh, since then, I've read many works of scholarship that corroborate that fact. My parents named me after Chinua Achebe, one of the most influential African authors, a major figure in post-colonial studies. May he rest in peace. My father, 
Um, my father, Michael Thelwell, is a writer, scholar, and activist, and he was friends with Achebe. My father asked Achebe if I could be his namesake, uh, and he said yes. So that's the origin of my name. For me, Chinua Achebe's books demonstrate how important it is for African people and Afro-diasporic people to tell our own stories and to challenge the degrading stories of the colonizer. Um, my dad was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights Movement, and I'm so grateful to have been raised by parents who are activist scholars. When I was a teenager, my father told me stories about the struggles for Black equality. You know, so I learned about people like Ella Baker, Bayard Rustin, uh, Kwame Torre, and I was especially, especially inspired by Paul Robeson and Muhammad Ali. Um, they spoke out against American racism and American imperialism, and their professional careers suffered because they took a stand. And um, I really looked up to them as heroes who lived their lives by progressive principles rather than prioritizing material wealth. Now, after high school, I went to Tufts University. Um, I took colleges on race and racism. And the topic is really fascinating to me, you know, how to build a better world, you know, how to build a more just world, how to build a multiracial democracy. And these were questions that I was trying to work through. And at the time, one of my friends, Alwyn Jones, had a big influence on me. He got accepted into PhD programs as a senior in college. And when he did that, I thought to myself, maybe I can do it too. You know, it takes a lot of courage for a college student to apply to PhD programs. Alwyn helped me build that courage. And Alwyn also told me, he also told me about a program called the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. And I went to the Institute and they helped me make my application a lot stronger. So uh, by the way, I, I would recommend the Institute to, un, you know, to undergraduate students of color in the United States who are thinking of applying for, you know, PhD programs in the humanities and social sciences. Um, IRT is really helping to diversify the American Academy. And, you know, it's an uphill struggle because of structural racism and the gatekeepers who don't want to make space for us. But the scholars at IRT are doing an amazing job of training people for the Academy. Um, I got into several graduate school programs. I ended up going to NYU's American Studies PhD program. American Studies is really appealing to me because it provides space to bring an interdisciplinary approach to comparative ethnic studies. But also, NYU was appealing to me because the faculty was comprised mostly of professors of color. So, you know, we scholars of color are underrepresented in the American Academy, and it was really empowering for me to come to campus during the new graduate student weekend and meet so many amazing faculty of color. While at NYU, I took courses in the American Studies, History, and Performance Studies departments. I learned from amazing anti-racist and intersectional scholars. I'm extremely grateful to have had opportunities to study with Arlene Davila, Karen Shimakawa, Lok Su, Walter Johnson, Lisa Dugan, Awam Amka, Ada Ferrer, Crystal Parikh, uh, and Daphne Brooks when she was a visiting professor at NYU. Um, I also learned a lot from Jose Munoz and Michael Dash. Uh, may they rest in peace. The scholars on my dissertation committee have been a constant source of support and mentorship. Michael Gomez was my main dissertation advisor. Um, I'm also eternally grateful for the guidance and teachings of Jennifer Morgan, Tavia Nyong'o, Andrew Ross, and Nikhil Singh. 
So I, after I um, finished graduate school, I entered the academic workforce during the so-called Great Recession, that time when deregulated and unfettered American banks exported an economic downturn across the globe. Academic jobs were pretty rare, but I landed at a really great university, William & Mary, and at William & Mary, I've received really valuable advice from Robert Trent Vinson, a scholar who does a lot of comparative work between South Africa and the United States. Um, and long story short, today I'm a tenured professor of history and Africana studies. I'm also a core faculty member of the Asian and Pacific Islander American Studies program at William & Mary. Now, broadly speaking, my research focuses on performance as hegemonic and counter-hegemonic discourse. My first book is an edited anthology of essays about my mother's theater company, Nouveau Theater. It's called Theater and Cultural Politics for a New World. The essays focus on the ways in which American theater is engaging the changing racial demographics of the United States. As the American population becomes more racially diverse, Traditionally Eurocentric theaters will be forced to stage more, more stories that reflect this diversity as they strive to stay relevant in an increasingly inundated entertainment landscape. The contributors to the book are an impressive collection of theater historians, performance studies scholars, ethnic studies professors, actors, actresses, playwrights, and artistic directors. Uh, I just have one more point to make in response to your first uh, question. Um, I feel very fortunate. Um, I, I just feel really, really fortunate to have an opportunity to be a professional scholar. And it's, it's a great privilege to learn for a living. And today in 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic is raging, so many people around the world are struggling to survive and don't have time to study. And meanwhile, uh, professional scholars are paid to study for a living. And I think it's a great privilege to learn for a living. And I'm just grateful for everything that I've earned and grateful for all of the help that I've received along the way. I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing kind of these vivid images of your journey. And, you know, we put them, when we put them together, it's like a picture in motion. It really brought a smile to my face to kind of hear you talk about um, how you are, um, how you are, how you kind of like receive these rich activist traditions and they like stay with you as you pursue this academic uh, career. So I, I really appreciated that. And I also appreciate the shout out to IRT. I'll also throw Melon Mays in there. Um, really important organizations that are getting minoritized people, people of color into uh, the academy so that we can do some important subversive work. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, let's talk, let's go, let's move into talking about the book. Um, Exporting Jim Crow investigates the globalization of blackface minstrelsy as a cultural export that reinforced the economic, political, and social exclusions of racial regimes. How did you come to write this book? And in your response, I would love if you can explain for our listeners how we should understand blackface minstrelsy or the figure of the minstrel as a character that appropriates black skin for dispossession, as you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that excellent question. So, um, so blackface minstrelsy is a racist genre of performance that was originally created by white Americans. Uh, they put on blackface paint and created mocking and derisive imitations of black speech, song, and dance. 
It was a variety show that included jokes, sketches, music, and dancing. As an anti-racist scholar, I call out racism and advocate for racial equality. So one of my goals is to deconstruct and denaturalize the concept of race. But before we can get to that point, you know, we have to have some understanding of how race is reproduced across generations, right? Race is not a natural thing. It is a social construct. It's imagined by human beings. So, so how do people learn? You know, how do people learn to see race? How do people learn to see racial hierarchy? And one answer is racist popular culture. And the blackface minstrel shows are one of the most racist examples of American popular culture. Now, my interest uh, in blackface minstrelsy began when I was a high school student. And uh, my teacher, Mrs. Booth, made us watch a really good documentary called Ethnic Notions. And uh, minstrel shows immediately shocked me because they seemed to be the opposite of what I had grown up with. Whereas uh, New World Theater had introduced me to performance as anti-racist discourse, blackface minstrelsy seemed to be a form of racist discourse. And uh, later, when I went to college, uh, I learned more about blackface minstrel shows. Um, I took a really transformative class at Tufts University called uh, Constructions of Whiteness with Professor Lisa Coleman. And we read several influential scholars who, who write about blackface, you know, Eric Lott, David Rodiger and Michael Rogan, may he rest in peace. Um, I watched, uh, also during college, I watched Spike Lee's movie, Bamboozled, and I was really blown away by the montage at the end of the movie that included many racist blackface movie clips and cartoons. Um, my father also recommended a really interesting novel called Dark Town Strutters by Wesley Brown. I read that. Um, and then also in my, um, in my Japanese history class, I learned that Commodore Matthew Perry, the United States Naval officer who used gunboat diplomacy to force Japan into a trading agreement in 1853, he actually brought a blackface minstrel show to Japan. You know, some of his crew members were amateur performers and they presented a blackface minstrel show during their stay. And um, this history, it, it, it really resonated with me because I had always wondered about how these kinds of racist images got to Japan. And I thought to myself, where else did these minstrels go? Where else did they go to, you know? And um, later during graduate school, I took a class with um, I took a class with Adam Green called uh, Roots of Race Thinking, and this was a really foundational class for me. It reaffirmed for me that the work I was doing on the social construction of race as an undergraduate student was also something that I could continue pursuing in graduate school. Uh, later, I took a class with Michael Gomez about the African diaspora, and while researching for that term paper, I found a footnote in Catherine Cole's book, uh, a book called Ghana's Concert Party Theater. Footnote five on page 164 of Ghana's Concert Party Theater, it opened up an, a whole new world for me. This footnote mentions scholarship on blackface minstrelsy in South Africa by uh, David Co Copland and uh, Veit Ehrman. And I read their research and I learned that South Africa has a fascinating history in relation to blackface minstrelsy, and yet there are relatively few works of scholarship on the topic. I emailed Veit Ehrman and asked him about the archives in South Africa. He was very generous, very positive, very helpful. And he assured me that I would find a lot of information if I go to the archives. Uh, so I used my NYU graduate stipend uh, to travel to Cape Town and I began doing archival research there in 2007. 
Um, now, regarding the other question, about, uh, the question that you asked about uh, dispossession, um, much of my thinking about blackface minstrelsy as a popular culture export has been influenced by Catherine Cole's fascinating suggestion that a transnational appraisal of blackface might reveal that it is quintessentially colonial rather than being quintessentially American. I argue... So I argue that blackface minstrelsy was indeed quintessentially colonial because its extractive cultural logics mirrored the extractive logics of the settler colonies in South Africa. So whereas minstrels expropri expropriate black skin and song and dance as commodifiable resources, the settler colonies facilitate the extraction of native labor and raw materials. According to Timothy Keegan, many British settlers in the Cape Colony in the 19th century advanced an ideology of accumulation and dispossession. And given this worldview, um, I imagine that it must have been really exciting for these settlers to watch a touring minstrel troupe and realize that, quote unquote, black culture was one more part of the colonial landscape that could be expropriated. Proponents of critical race theory argue that white settlers often invested in whiteness as a form of exclusive property. Meanwhile, I think that white settlers imagine blackness as being thoroughly commodified, unmoored, and available for pillaging. And I essentially, I, I argue that blackface minstrel shows offered fantasies of resource expropriation in the Cape and the tall colonies of South Africa. Blackface minstrel shows were a cultural manifestation of the colonial project, almost like a cultural metaphor for colonialism. Yes, and I am very much looking forward to getting into uh, sort of, yeah, the underpinnings of, of the argument that you put forth in this book um, very soon. Um, however, before we go there, um, I just wanted to really highlight um, the way that this book draws on various sources um, from song lyrics, sketches, memoirs, photos, um, all, newspapers in all languages, English, Afrikaans, and as well as African newspapers, um, to, to stitch together a history of minstrelsy's globalization over five distinct waves from you know the early 1800s through the 21st century. Um, and we're spanning the, spanning these really expansive geographies uh, throughout the Anglo-Saxon Empire and the broader settler colonial world. So can you tell us uh, about your research approach? You mentioned that in 07, you went down to Cape Town and did an archival trip. Um, if you could share more about those archives or any other archives um, and the experiences that you had overall in doing the tremendous amount of writing and research for this book. Thank you so much for, for that question. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the National Library of South Africa in Cape Town is the main archive where I conducted my research. Um, I spent uh, eight months in South African archives. Uh, I found English South African newspapers, colored newspapers, uh, African newspapers, um, as well as photographs, memoirs, and a few diaries, um, um, a few sources uh, in, in, in Dutch. Um, now, most of my time was spent reading newspapers on microfilm. Uh, I, I, was, I, I made a decision to focus on the ways in which blackface minstrelsy circulates in the Anglophone world. Um, the, the professional minstrels, they, they spoke, they joked, and they sang in English. Uh, they toured the British colonies because English language speakers were their main audience. 
they toured the cities. They toured the cities of 19th century South Africa because because these were the places where the English speaking population was most populous. Um, and in total, I read approximately 270 years of printed newspaper coverage on microfilm. And um, this kind of research might sound tedious to some people, but it was a necessary uh, thing for me to do because I was building up a primary source base. Um, that being said, there were moments when I would read weeks of coverage and I wouldn't I wouldn't find anything. So so I created little games to pass the time as I sifted <laughs> as I sifted through the articles in April and June. I would I would look forward to July and especially to the middle of July, which is when my birthday uh, happens. I imagine I was, I, was, I would imagine that you know something special might happen on my birthday. Maybe there would be like a celestial event, like an eclipse or a comet, announcing my future birth in the world. And this is just a you know it's just a silly game that I played to keep myself amused and give myself another reason to keep reading and keep digging. And on the flip side, oftentimes the research was really really exciting. You know, it gave me great joy to find an article that was especially informative. Um, so as I scanned the newspapers, I likened myself to the miners in Kimberley, South Africa, who were digging for gold. You know, the main difference being, you know, the main difference being that my gold came in the form of stories and evidence. And, and of course, of course, I'm very different from the white miners in Kimberley because I did not try to monopolize the situation by blocking people of other races from having access. Right? The, the white miners petitioned the government to stop black Africans from buying gold mines, uh, from buying gold claims. Uh, by contrast, you know, I was doing this work because I believed that I was trying to recover a historical narrative that might actually help colonize people of color. So, so I identified with the miners in a very limited kind of way. Um, and over time, I built up a large archive of newspaper printouts. Uh, the newspapers include a lot of useful information, uh, the names of the professional minstrel troops, the travel plans of the troops, the, the audience response, uh, the composition of the audience, uh, descriptions of how popular the minstrel shows were. Um, and most importantly, for my purposes, uh, the names of the songs, sketches, and stump speeches that were performed in South Africa. Um, I made a long list of these songs, long list of these sketches, and, and then I took that list to several archives in the United States, and I looked for more documentation. And ultimately, um, ultimately, I was able to find the lyrics for 248 songs, and I also found the scripts for 35 of the short plays that were presented in South Africa. So, um, so what I did was I did close textual readings of the songs and scripts in order to reveal the messages that were disseminated by the blackface minstrel troops that toured uh, South Africa in the 19th century. Now, to study the history of the Capsa Klapsa Carnival in Cape Town, I, I searched through many decades of colored newspapers, English newspapers and African newspapers. Um, I also visited the Western Cape Oral History Project um, at University of Cape Town, uh, and I collected transcripts of interviews with carnival participants. I also traveled to Cape Town and watched the carnival parade and the carnival competitions in person. Um, I, I would also want to just quickly note that you know much of my research did not make it into the book. You know I have many printouts of primary sources that are not directly referenced in my book. Uh, I keep these printouts in folders on one of my bookshelves, you know, just stacks and stacks and stacks of primary sources, approximately 3,500 documents. Um, I have not digitized my, <laughs> thanks, 
Thanks. I, I haven't digitized my research yet, but one day I plan to digitize these documents. And um, oh, just last point to make about research method. Uh, in the afterword of exporting Jim Crow, I say that the digital the digital archive is the future. You know, when I was reading decades and decades of newspapers on microfilm, I was just basically doing you know keyword searches. You know. Uh, by contrast, you know, with with a digital archive, scholars can do the same keyword searches and find so much material so much faster. You know, now my approach, in which I read microfilm, was the best approach available to me. Meanwhile, I'm hoping that digital archives will become more widespread and high-speed internet internet will become more affordable, so so as to benefit future researchers. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm really hoping that uh, South African materials can also be digitized. I also myself spent a lot of time in the same uh, national library <laughs> with <laughs> newspapers. So I appreciate uh, kind of the sentiment that you shared about, you know, your heart just flutters when you find a, a, a story that um, that speaks to the relationships that you're trying to show in your research. So definitely resonate with that. Most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so let's dive into the book. Your first chapter compellingly lays out the connections between white racial states, racially exclusionary citizenship, and the performance cultures of minstrelsy. Can you elaborate on your concept of burnt cork nationalism and explain how this pernicious form of cultural nationalism was reinforced in the British Empire, Australia, and the Indian Ocean world, and ultimately in the Cape Colony? Yeah. Thank, thank you again for these really thoughtful questions. Um, so burnt cork nationalism is one of the through lines connecting the different chapters of my book. It's a term that I created to describe a very specific situation. It, ref- it refers to the cork that was burned to create the blackface makeup and to the exclusionary racial nationalism in the repertoire of minstrel images, jokes, songs, and sketches. Uh, I argue that the patriotic humor of minstrel shows often portrayed black characters as non-citizens who were supposedly unfit for democratic participation in a white racial state. Uh, During the middle of the 19th century, many British settlers believed that Anglo-Saxons were the only race that was capable of self-governance. The term fitness for self-governance was kind of thrown around and used often. Now, The blackface caricatures of minstrel stages contributed to this mentality by offering fantastical images of incompetent black citizenship that reinforced this belief in white racial supremacy. So, for example, there was a minstrel stump speech called Or Any Other Man, and uh, versions of this speech were performed in South Africa. And the speech is a black character who's trying to participate in a modern democracy. And it's, you know, it's filled with malapropisms, mispronunciations, inaccurate claims about history. And... Um, it's supposed to be an incompetent black speaker, and I found many moments like this, uh, where, where you know the very concept of black citizenship was being ridiculed by the blackface minstrels. Um, and uh, I found uh, minstrel stump speeches that were written by British settlers and published in South African newspapers, and they followed the same formula by portraying black public speakers as incompetent. Now, regarding the second question about how blackface minstrel shows spread throughout the British Empire, in 1836, um, a white American blackface minstrel named Thomas Dartmouth Rice brought his Jump Jim Crow song and dance to London. Uh, 
He was an overnight sensation, overnight sensation. And later in the 1840s, the Virginia minstrels and the Ethiopian serenaders both left America and toured England. Uh, a, a British minstrel scene started to develop. And by the end of the 1850s, there were at least 50 homegrown professional British blackface minstrel troops in uh, Greater Britain. And and after minstrelsy was popularized in the British metropole, professional British minstrels began touring the colonies looking for new audiences. I talk about two transnational touring circuits in my book. The first I dub the Anglo-Colonial Circuit, starting in England uh, and going to South Africa, India, and Australia. Um, the second circuit is what Matthew Whitman calls the Pacific Circuit. The Pacific Circuit ran from San Francisco to Australia and included mid-oceanic stopovers in Honolulu and Tahiti. And so the story of blackface minstrelsy in South Africa is a story of imperial triangulation because the Anglo-colonial circuit of the London minstrels and the Pacific circuit of the American minstrels eventually converged in Cape Town and Durban, you know, two, two major cities in South Africa, as you know. And um, South Africa was a nexus point linking the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific oceans. Right. And I think that that's definitely one of the major strengths of the book is that from very early on, you establish these uh, these transnational circuits, which are really global, um, which becomes the yeah, which becomes the means through which these these ideas and these performances are are moving around and then having this discursive impact um, in the places where they land. So, um, yeah, as a part of that, you argue that menstrual performances discursively strengthened the foundations and customs of the South African racial state. And this is a state that ultimately, as you say, and as my research is on, ultimately turns into the apartheid state in the 20th century. So can you tell us about how blackface minstrelsy became localized in the Cape and the work that professional and amateur performers did to establish or reinforce existing racial discourses in that location? And per perhaps also explain what types of idealized white fantasies um, did Mitchell performances reveal about that particular Cape context? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you for these questions. Um, so. Um, professional blackface minstrels traveled to the Cape Colony in 1862, right when an unprecedented amount of Kosa people were migrating into the colony. Um, decades of armed conflict with the British settlers and a lethal cattle disease had devastated Kosa economies and people were starving. Many Kosa came into the Cape Colony trying to find work. And so Blackface minstrelsy was introduced to the Cape Colony during a time when an unprecedented number of Black Africans were working there as menial laborers, and the British colonists were heavily dependent on African labor. They wanted access to as many African workers as possible. British settlers probably liked blackface minstrelsy. They liked it partly because it provided a commentary on Black labor and it justified their exploitation of local populations. So in other words, they could apply the minstrel imaginary to their own situation. 
later, you know, the notion of the African migrant worker, as you know, it's going to become a very important part of the apartheid system, right? During the apartheid yes. era, you know, white people in the white areas of the country, they wanted black workers, but they did not want to live next to black people, right? So, um, so many of the blackface minstrel songs, they were performed in South Africa. They, 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 they offered white supremacist fantasies of black workers who were happy, subservient, and did not protest for better, better treatment or equal rights. It was a fantasy in which black people contribute labor to the white racial state, but do not protest for equal rights. I argue that these stereotypes were appreciated by British settlers because they were white supremacist fantasies of the ideal black worker. You know, minstrel shows portrayed black workers who contributed labor, but did not try to challenge the social hierarchy by protesting for equal rights. And um, this spoke directly to the fantasies of the British settlers in the Cape Colony, just as it spoke to the white plantation owners of the American South. Um, so, uh, you know, today, Today, it's sometimes mistakenly believed that minstrel show audiences knew that the performances they watched were, you know, hyperbolic caricatures. Yet, I found many historical newspaper articles in which the British settler press claimed that the blackface minstrels offered accurate portrayals of black people. And I found many examples of this. So, so I argue that these minstrel shows were often presented as accurate representations of blackness. So thus, you know, the minstrel show was not just about entertainment. It was also about knowledge production. And yet, I believe that precisely because it was a form of entertainment, the minstrel show was an especially dangerous form of knowledge production. It had more popular appeal because, um, because it had more entertainment value than the average pro-slavery lecture or phrenology speech. As such, you know, as such, the minstrel show pioneered a highly aestheticized form of racist commentary that was not only popular, but also very exportable. Um, many of these right, songs... Right, and... Yeah, oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that many of these songs, they portrayed enslaved African-Americans who were supposedly treated so well that they cried when the kind slave master died. And yeah, this <laughs> this I noted yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> This ridiculous image of the benevolent slave master shows up in minstrel songs that, you know, were performed in South Africa. So these portrayals of obedient and happy, happy you know, slaves who worshipped their masters were really, really appreciated by the British settlers, you know, who wished for a similar reception by the African workers that they depended on to extract wealth from the colony, you know. Um, um, furthermore, many of the minstrel songs uh, they, that were performed in South Africa celebrated the British royal family. So whenever I write about blackface minstrelsy, I try to picture the performance in my mind. You know, so I picture an, an image of a white person in blackface, you know, singing odes to the British royal family. This really is a, it's an imperial fantasy of loyal mm. and patriotic black people. And this fantasy would have been really comforting for British settlers who were living in the colonies that, you know, they could imagine the African civilizations who control territory outside of the colonies as, you know, future loyal subjects to the British crown. You know, minstrel shows peddled several different kinds of imperial fantasies. And, um, and this would have been especially comforting to the British settlers in the 1860s because there was a series of mid-century uprisings uh, by colonized people across the British Empire that would have created some anxiety among the settlers. Um, 
South African newspapers uh, included accounts of the Indian mutiny of 1857, you know, Maori uprisings in New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, the Marat Bay Rebellion in, in 1865 in Jamaica. And colonists would have also remembered the frontier wars with Kosa and, and, and how um, uh, those wars had played out during the first half of the century. And so in this kind of imperial context, minstrel shows offered comforting fantasies of Black people who, unlike actual colonial subjects, did not fight back. You know, mm-hmm. Black sycophants who kind of bowed to the royal family and sang odes to benevolent slave masters. Um, also, I argue that um, that the uh, British settlers used minstrelsy to develop a kind of transnational consciousness that connected them to the British metropole um, and connected them to British colonists in other parts of the empire. You know, they knew that minstrel shows were popular in the British metropole, and by going to the show of a touring minstrel troupe, they could fi- they could kind of feel a connection to the metropole. Um, mm-hmm. uh, several of the professional minstrel troops published advertisements in South African newspapers claiming that their shows were very popular in London. And furthermore, the local British South African press would often publish descriptions of the tours of the professional minstrels, saying that the professional minstrels were performing in India or Australia. And so the British settlers could could follow the transnational tours of their favorite minstrel troops by reading newspaper descriptions of performances in other places. And... Um, also, during the middle of the century, the steam engine made oceanic voyage much faster. So the, you know, the minstrel shows were basically helping the British settlers develop this idea of being in a transnational community that is connected by their shared appreciation of blackface minstrelsy. Um, and by participating in blackface minstrelsy, this was one means by which the British settlers held on to that which made them British while mm-hmm. living in a frontier colony you know, far away from the metropole. Um, Now, the larger point here is that this minstrel culture was not only about producing fantastical, you know, racist knowledge about Black people, it was also contributing to the construction of a white racial identity that was defined against Blackness. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and I think the... The fact that these shows are recurring, it, it creates this like a recurring practice of, um, you know, that will that will gain greater purchase in society in a way that's very different than a political speech or something that's more that's less frequent, um, something that's not the subject of discussion or um, media um, attention. So I think that this chapter really kind of shows how it just becomes embedded or, and it reveals and reflects what is already embedded in, in the Cape Colony. Thank um, you. Yeah. The next chapter kind of builds on that and it explores the convergence of these white fantasies with the material reality of, uh, of the discovery of diamonds and gold in South Africa in the late 19th century. Um, and you show how, um, that discovery further entrenches the colonial order, um, particularly with regard to minstrel culture and how minstrel culture provides discursive support for the economic and social order that grows from this this specific practice of resource plunder and extraction. Mm -hmm. So um, I wonder if you can tell us about kind of the convergence of these two things, um, the, the fantasies on the one hand and then the material reality. Yeah. Thank you. This is really, really 
such excellent questions. Um, and uh, I, I just want to thank you for, for interviewing me, Amanda, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading your scholarship in the future. Um, so, so yeah, in chapter three, as you say, you know, I write, you know, I, I write about the mineral revolution. Um, the discovery of diamonds in South Africa led to urbanization and more, you know, violent colonial expansion at the expense uh, of uh, African civilizations. And um, there was this parade of professional British and American minstrel troops during the era. Uh, more black-faced minstrel troops toured the South African colonies in the 1870s and 1880s than in any other time period. And um, I argue that the mineral—excuse me—I argue that the minstrels were chasing the miners who were chasing the gold rushes, and that's why you know many minstrels went to California in the 1850s, Australia in the 1850s and 1860s, and then uh, South Africa in the 1870s and 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, after the discovery of di- after the discovery of diamonds in South Africa, people in the British metropole realized that the South African colonies could be really profitable, and the metropole invested you know military resources so that the British settlers could expand their territory by conquering local Africans. Um, it was ex- you know an especially violent time of colonial expansion, even compared to the earlier time periods. Now. In his book, uh, Love and Theft, uh, Eric Lott says that, quote, cultural expropriation is the minstrel show's central fact. And um, in this chapter, I riff on this quote. I argue that minstrel shows were a cultural expression of resource extraction in colonial contexts. Minstrel shows offered fantasies of resource expropriation. Um, in the imperial imaginary, in the imperial imaginary, almost everything in the colonial landscape is extractable, including the labor of the indigenous inhabitants. And in the context of colonial South Africa, when white performers appeared in blackface, they were claiming a kind of imperial ownership over the black people they were subjugating. Um, in this chapter, I also talk about the violence of minstrel songs. Uh, blackface mm-hmm. minstrels, uh, they sang, you know, songs that made jokes about black people dying in comedic ways. Um, so I use the phrase uh, minstrel sadism to talk about that that portion of the minstrel repertoire that made jokes about black death and black pain and suffering. Um, Sadia Hartman also writes about this issue in Scenes of Subjection. And um, mm-hmm. I just want to I just want to quickly share one example that I found to be really you know instructive but also troubling. Um, one song that was performed in South Africa was called "Quote Unquote um, Ten Little Niggers," and the joke is that nine of the characters in the song die in comedic ways. And I believe that it was especially an especially malevolent song to sing during a time when so many Africans were being killed in the name of colonial expansion. Um, so I argue that, you know, blackface minstrel shows provided much of the patriotic soundtrack working to justify the British Empire's colonial wars against Africans. Um, this is a kind of burnt cork nationalism. Um, now, the, um, the Mineral Revolution chapter, it also provides a description of the exploitative practices of the white miners, uh, you know, the closed compound system in which African workers were housed in, um, you know, these really small living spaces and then corralled directly into the mines. I also talk about the past system and systems of residential segregation. Uh, Several scholars have described these 19th century practices as the opening salvos of apartheid. Um, 
So I wanted, to, I just wanted to mention this now in order to bring up another through line in my book. Um, as you kind of you, you've mentioned earlier, you know, basically I'm looking at the Cape and Natal colonies as racial projects designed to distribute resources across racial lines. And Exporting Jim Crow is offering a narrative of settler colonies that were developing into the racial state that we now know as apartheid, you know. So basically just looking at the ways in which blackface minstrelsy contributed discursively to the creation of white racial states, apartheid South Africa and Jim Crow America. One last thing to say about the third chapter, Um, I was not able to find enough African responses to blackface minstrelsy to create a standalone chapter. So what I did was I found other ways to include African and Afro-diasporic voices in my narrative. So in one of my section headings in the Mineral Revolution chapter, I used the phrase appetite and force to describe the colonial project. Um, This is referencing the negritude writer Amy Césaire and his book, Discourse on Colonialism. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Similarly, uh, earlier in the book, I reference a poem by Nonsisi Magueto, a a Xhosa language poet who was writing in the 1920s. And uh, I was intrigued by her poetry because much of the language in her poetry is about the colonial expropriation of resources. And in one of her poems, she says, quote unquote, "We're, we're British We'll rip the candy from your mouths. We'll rip the candy from your mouths. And I love that quote. And I decided to, to quote this language in one of my section headings. So, so at times, I tried to recirculate the language that actual Black people use to critique colonial exploitation. And this was my way of bringing in more Black protest traditions into a narrative that is mostly about you know, the transnational circulation of American racism. Right. And I think that thinking about resistance in the South African context kind of uh, transitions us really well into what the central topic of the fourth chapter is. Um, So I think that, yeah, the fourth chapter marks a turning point in the book where you begin to examine African-American minstrel shows, particularly the McAdoo or McAdoo minstrel shows. can you tell us about how these shows challenged burnt cork nationalism and how did mostly white South African audiences receive these subversive shows that presented counter narratives to their racial thinking? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again. Um, so, um, so yeah, as you, you know, so during the 1890s, uh, two troops of actual African-American performers toured South Africa. And this was indeed, as you say, a turning point because the performers were black people and not white people in blackface. Now, their manager was Orpheus McAdoo, an African-American entrepreneur and a baritone vocalist. He was a former slave. And one of his goals was to present, he wanted to present an uplift politics project that would challenge degrading stereotypes and prove that black people were worthy enough to be first-class citizens. Um, In the early 1890s, McAdoo brought a troupe of Jubilee singers to South Africa. They were modeled after the Fisk Jubilee singers. They sang concert spirituals and educated the public about the history of African-Americans in the United States. Um, McAdoo would give lectures during the intermissions in between the songs in the tradition of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Um, 
So this was partly about spreading music, but it was also about spreading knowledge. You know, and this time, a knowledge that was designed by an African-American performer explicitly to counteract the destructive racial fantasies of white supremacists. Um, In 1897, McAdoo returned to South Africa with a minstrel troupe, and he called his troupe Orpheus McAdoo's high-class colored American minstrel vaudeville company. Um, please note the word high class. He was marketing his troupe as being, you know, highbrow art. You know, uh, this was a big departure from the minstrel shows that were brought to South Africa uh, during the previous decades. You know, mm-hmm. so I argue that McAdoo was presenting a kind of uplift politics project that was using upper class symbols to advocate for racial equality for black people. Racial uplift politics, as it was practiced in the United States, was largely about challenging the racist ideas that, you know, the racist idea that Black people were incapable of fully participating in modern democratic nations. McAdoo practiced racial uplift politics by presenting images of upwardly mobile African-Americans. This was a kind of class-based intervention in race thinking. And... And as your question, you know, um, so, you know, accurately asked, you know, uh, you know, I argue that, you know, McAdoo challenged the prevailing orthodoxy of burnt cork nationalism by presenting portrayals of non-white people who were talented, hardworking, competent and deserving of first class citizenship. And um, one thing he did is he removed some of the more degrading, you know, some of the more degrading elements of minstrel shows. So his performers, they did not use blackface. McAdoo also did not include stump speeches because stump speeches were poking fun at the uplift politics project that he was trying to realize. Um, And he also presented the cakewalk dance as a, quote, graceful and artistic American novelty. Furthermore, he included opera singing in his show. You know, he, included, he had an opera singer in his show. So he was trying to portray Black music and dance as highbrow art, um, as a kind of, um, and oftentimes a hybridized form of highbrow art, mixing with certain European traditions. And furthermore, he also included content that uh, portrayed the violence and the oppression of American slavery. Um, and so this was very different from the portrayals of happy black slaves in traditional blackface minstrel shows. Um, Mm -hmm. But then speaking to the other part of your question about reception, um, this is really where we see the limits of the uplift politics project. You know, McAdoo was kind of, he was presenting a kind of self-help ideology insinuating that African people had to improve their behavior so that they could be accepted by white people during that time period as being equal. Um, And this kind of belief that Black people should concentrate on self-improvement often assumes that there's something wrong with Black people that must be improved while leaving structural impediments to advancement um, under-criticized. And so ultimately, though, um, I I think that McAdoo was a remarkable human being who was born into slavery, and he still was able to find ways to travel around the world making money as a manager and as a performer. And um, he and his troop members were pioneering contributors to Black Atlantic formations in England, South Africa, and Australia. Yeah, there's, there are just so many wonderful things about this chapter. Uh, I wish I could go on and, and talk more about, particularly like uh, Paul Kruger's reception of oh. one of these shows or something. I really appreciated the read that you did on that. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you through, so much. 
in numerous different kind of ways because we can't really know what why he teared up at the end of one of these shows. But um, I appreciated the work that you did to try to uncover what was going on there. Um, So I know (laughs) that we have to spend some time with the final chapter of the book, um, which is called, uh, and I'm excited to spend this time, um, which is called Brown Brown on Black Masquerades. Um, Mm -hmm. And it describes the evolution of a uniquely South African tradition of clubs or coon carnivals. Can you first explain what these complex events are and how they challenge or reproduce the goals of the menstrual racial project? Um, And second, um, I was intrigued to read about the reception of your scholarship on the coon carnivals in U.S. academic circles. Um, And I know that I had my own experience when I was looking through um, 1970s newspapers and I first came across images of uh, the 1970s coon carnivals and I, I... didn't know what to think. (laughs) Um, So might you describe some of the frictions you encountered with translating South African culture to the U.S. context and perhaps gesture towards what scholars of global or transnational history should take away from these challenges of cultural reception and translation across borders? Yes, yes. So um, the the Capsa Clubsa Carnival is an annual celebration for colored people in Cape Town. Uh, For American listeners who are new to South African history, it's important to know that colored is a specific racial category in South Africa. In South Africa, the word colored is usually used to describe mixed race people of indigenous African, European, and or Asian descent. Also, in the context of the South African carnival, the word coon has been deracialized. So I found examples of local people who deracialized the word coon uh, in colored newspapers as early as the 1940s. Um, And for carnival participants today, the word coon means, you know, costume carnival participant. It's it's basically used synonymously with the Afrikaans word klepsa. Kuhn is not considered to be a racial slur like in the United States. So that, that I think that's important context that people have to know. Now, Capsa uh, Klopsa is an Afrikaans phrase that translates to clubs of the cape. And throughout the book and in this interview, I use the phrase Klopsa as a shorthand for Capsa Klopsa. This, this is standard practice among participants. Now, it's really, really important to note that the, the Cape Town Carnival, it began as an emancipation celebration in the 1830s when formerly enslaved people of the Cape paraded the streets in celebration of the end of slavery. So that's that's really important context to to have down. Um, Now, during the 1870s, decades later, during the 1870s and 1880s, blackface minstrel aesthetics were brought into the celebration. in that time, it makes a lot of sense, given the fact that many white American and British blackface minstrel troops visited Cape Town during those decades. Um, I found newspaper sources claiming that the people who would later be described as colored were going to these blackface minstrel shows. And for many decades, uh, many of the carnival revelers would blacken their faces. And so I'm imagining that that's what you were seeing in the, those 1970s newspapers. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the carnival, it, it's evolved over the years. It's changed with the times, and it's still a really important festival today. Um, but it's also important to note that blackface has been removed from the carnival. It was removed in the late 80s and, 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 and the early 90s. So 
Today's carnivals do not feature blackface. Um, during most years, uh, the carnival includes multiple events. Usually there's a big march where all of the troops march through the center of Cape Town. There are also competition days where the different carnival troops compete with each other in the major stadiums of Cape Town. And the people who win the carnival competitions are you know, filled with pride and happiness. You know, carnival offers an opportunity for working class people to perform and to be seen and to be proud. Um, we really have to remember that coloreds were a community that were purposefully blocked out of the white economy of South Africa, you know, purposefully denied access to resources and opportunities to travel. Um, coloreds were a marginalized community who were not allowed to live in the white neighborhoods in the center of the city during the apartheid era. Several astute commentators argue that the carnival march through the center of the city is a kind of symbolic taking of the city, kind of taking control of the city. And um, this should remind scholars of Mikhail Bakhtin's notion of the carnivalesque, you know, the social world inverted as the powerless get to become powerful for a short amount of time during carnival season. You know, carnival offers a brief moment when working class colored people get to metaphorically take over the city, you know, um, and it also offers opportunities to, you know, imagine that one is traveling, you know, because carnival carnival participants can pretend to be carnival characters from, you know, faraway places like the United States. Now, ultimately, you know, I argue that colored South Africans were not first class citizens of the white racial state. And so this is, you know, it's different from the white American minstrels who appropriated blackness on, you know, blackface minstrel show stages, you know, as such models of cultural appropriation that so perfectly call out the privilege of white American minstrels are really inadequate when talking about Cape Town Carnival. Um, and so I argue that, you know, the apartheid era carnival, it offered space for many different kinds of racial impersonations. And many coloreds were reappropriating the blackface imagery of minstrel shows in order to dream about a kind of liberation that they could not yet achieve under the apartheid state. Now, um, as initially counterintuitive as it may seem from an American perspective, you know, I agree with Dennis Constant Martin and Nadia Davids that many of the clubs who put on blackface were probably trying to imagine a transnational alliance with African-Americans. Um, because of the widespread circulation of overly positive representations of the United States, um, they might have believed, um, as many did at the time, that America was a land of freedom where non-white people could be themselves. You know, um, uh, one example I found uh, in 1921, there was a Klepsa troupe called the they were called the Black Star Line Coons, and um, this, this is a it's an obvious reference to Marcus Garvey and Amy Jacques Garvey's um, Universal Negro Improvement Association and their Black Star Line, a, you know, a small fleet of steamships. The UNIA was founded in the United States, and according to Robert Trent Vinson's research, it also had a presence in Cape Town. Um, so I suspect that the people who joined the Black Star Line Coon Troop probably knew about the significance of the UNIA as an anti-colonial organization that was trying to free Black people from oppression. 
Um, but that was just one side of the carnival. You know, the Black Star Line coons only appeared in the sources in one carnival in 1921. Meanwhile, I found plenty of other examples that were not hinting at a transnational alliance between colonized people. So, so for example, in 1951, a Cape Times reporter interviewed some carnival participants, and they described the paint that they were using to make the exaggerated large lips of the blackface mask as their quote-unquote nigger paste. Um, I, I believe that there was something derisive going on there. And, and as an intellectually responsible scholar, I cannot gloss over that derision. You know, it did have a presence. Remember, you know, as you know, you know, South African apartheid was based on the idea of an extreme racial hierarchy with white people on top, colored people in the middle, and black African people on the bottom. Um, so this is the social context in which the apartheid era carnival is playing out. And I argue that anti-black racism it was far from the norm, but it did have a presence in Carnival, which should not be ignored or glossed over. And um, that being said, ultimately, I support the argument of other scholars who have studied Carnival, who believe that most early Klepsa were, were, were most likely, you know, more interested in performing a kind of imaginary form of African-American freedom than they were interested in, you know, denigrating local Black Africans. Now, um, regarding your question about the reception of my work in American academic circles, um, I really did feel like I was stuck between a rock and a hard place when I wrote this chapter. Some established scholars who have devoted a lot of time and energy to studying Cape Town Carnival and have participated in the carnival themselves strongly resist the idea that anti-Black racism was part of the carnival. And and as a junior scholar, I felt some pressure to reproduce their narratives. However, on the other side of the situation are anti-racist African-American scholars who know the ugly history of blackface minstrel shows in the United States, but are just learning about the Cape Town Carnival. Um, I believe that these scholars have legitimate reasons to be skeptical of an event that was marketed in so many South African newspapers for so many years as the quote-unquote Coon Carnival. Um, I've presented my research on Carnival at the American Studies Association and the American Historical Association, and the conversations have been very cordial. Nonetheless, several African-American scholars encouraged my inclination to not gloss over words that appeared in my sources, words like darky or quote-unquote nigger. Now, the word coon was deracialized, but these words were not. And so ultimately, I tried, you know, I tried to navigate these two sides of the, dis of the discussion while being true to the historical sources that I found. Um, and in response to your last question, I think the main takeaway for scholars who study cultural exchange in transnational and colonial contexts is that you should try to be respectful to the local culture be respectful to the to the local culture while also staying true to the sources that you find. For me, that's that's the main takeaway. And I think it shows that uh, your treatment of of um, these carnivals in this chapter is very careful and it's very balanced, um, and it doesn't gloss over any of the derisions um, or it, it sits with the tension actually very well. Thank you. Um, so. Let, let me ask you our final question about the book. This one is about the afterword. How does this essay fit into the rest of the book? 
Yes, thank you. So the afterword steps outside of South Africa to offer a large-scale narrative about the history of blackface minstrelsy in the global arena. Um, it traces the spread of blackface minstrel shows in the British Isles, continental Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, uh, the Pacific Ocean, and Asia. Um, it's intended to be a jumping off point for future scholars who are interested in the transnational dissemination of blackface imagery. Um, I argue that the globalization of blackface minstrelsy played out during five successive waves. The first wave began in 1836 and continued through the 1840s. This was when white American minstrels traveled to England and popularized the genre. The second wave spans from the 1850s to the 1880s as professional American and British minstrel troops toured several transnational circuits. Uh, during the third wave, the 1890s to 1915, a relatively small number of blackface performers traveled abroad because vaudeville had risen to popularity in the United States and there were less blackface minstrel troops who were touring. Um, the fourth wave of blackface imagery was disseminated by Hollywood films beginning in 1915 with Birth of a Nation and going up to the 1960s. Um, and then after the civil rights movement, blackface became taboo in mainstream venues in the United States and Hollywood stopped making uncritical portrayals of blackface. Uh, thus, the fifth wave of minstrel globalization, I argue, runs from the post-civil rights era up to the present moment. Um, because blackface is no longer socially acceptable in mainstream American venues, when blackface does appear, it has to be a kind of self-aware critique of the character who is blacking up. So instead of you know making fun of black people, it's about making fun of the people who are foolish enough to blacken up. Um, Spike Lee's movie Bamboozled is a good example. Um, also, the afterword is a kind of review essay that will help uh, future researchers because it includes almost all of the English language secondary sources on transnational blackface that I was able to find. Thank you. All right. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I found the afterword to do what you said. It kind of just charts new directions uh, in this emerging field for future scholars. So that is always appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, so the final question before we go uh, is, uh, I would love for you to share with us what you're working on now or um, just any of the things that you're thinking about now. I know that, you know, you just put this book out, so uh, you don't necessarily need to have something um, on the docket. But, you know, if you want to just share new directions that you're thinking in. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, um I'm, I'm excited about my new research project. Um, this time around, I plan to write about real Afro-diasporic culture rather than the degrading caricatures of blackface minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. While I was working on exporting Jim Crow, some mornings I had some difficulty waking up to the hateful images and racist yeah. history of blackface minstrelsy. It was difficult for me at times. You know, I was especially frustrated by the huge difference between the minstrel portrayals of black public speakers and the actual eloquence of African-American oral traditions. Um, so in contrast to the degrading minstrel imaginary, actual African-American oral traditions are about using language skillfully with wit, rhythm, style, and grace. So my next book project, um, it's going to trace out a genealogy of these African-American oral traditions, beginning with the griots and ending with contemporary rap music. Um, 
My, my interest in this research project first began when I was a college student who spent most of my free time listening to rap music, reading African-American poets, and writing and performing spoken word poetry. Um, I've, been mm. interest, I've been interested in this topic for a couple decades, and basically um, this genealogy would start with the griots, the poet historians of West African civilizations, and after this I would offer a narrative describing you know, different manifestations of this oral tradition across the centuries in the United States. Uh, I would focus on uh, folk stories and folk poems, the performance traditions of Black preachers, the speeches of Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, uh, the dialect poetry of the Harlem Renaissance and mm -hmm. the Black Arts Movement, uh, preacher activists during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, people like Fannie Lou Hamer and um, MLK, uh, Muhammad Ali's boast poems, uh, the rhyming couplets of DJ Daddy O'Daly, the poetry of Sonia Sanchez, Entozaki Shange, Gil Scott Heron, Saul Williams, mm -hmm. um, the, yes. to <laughs> <laughs> the toast poem tradition, the dozens, and then you know rap music. And you know rap music didn't just appear out of thin air in the South Bronx in the 1970s. Rap music is drawn from multiple Afro-diasporic oral traditions that I believe can be traced back to West Africa. And mm -hmm. That's why it kind of annoys me when people make that lazy criticism that rap is the new blackface minstrelsy. I see it all over the place. You know, people make that. And um, I've done, you know, archival research on blackface minstrelsy, and it's very different from rap music, you know. Whereas minstrelsy was imagined by white men, rap was created by Afro-diasporic people who did not need to darken the skin to make a stage persona, you know. Um, rap is drawing from Afro-diasporic oral traditions and not from the blackface minstrel show. Now, um, a central part of my narrative is going to be the Mande diaspora. Um, griot traditions are especially strong with Mande speakers. Um, the Mande word for griot is, is jelly. Um, as demonstrated by Judith Carney, during the era of the transatlantic slave trade, many Mande speakers were brought to the American South to share their knowledge regarding uh, rice cultivation. Um, I think it's highly likely that griots were part of the Mande diaspora that was brought to the Americas. And so what I'm proposing here is a scholarly project that revisits the available primary sources in the Carolinas from the era of slavery with a reading practice that spoke that focuses specifically on the African griot. Um, I plan to reread sources with the goal of finding convincing evidence proving that griots were brought to the American South. And after proving this hypothesis, we scholars can make an even stronger argument claiming that African American oral traditions are part of a literal continuum of poetic practices that can be traced back to West Africa. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking that this book could be a big contribution to the cultural history of the African diaspora. Um, and for me, it's, it's really an opportunity to study cultural exchange in the other direction. You know, whereas, you know, so whereas, yeah, exporting Jim Crow was about, you know, popular culture, American popular culture that was exported to Africa. You know, this project is about West African cultures that were forcefully brought to the United States. Um, so that's one project. Um, but here's another project that I've been thinking about recently. Um, I could move out of cultural studies while continuing to write about racism. Um, as a race scholar living in the year 2020, it seems like the most impactful thing I could do would be to critique the 21st century white racial state as represented by Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Um, 
So my discussion would bring, it would, it would begin with Omid Winant's idea that neoliberal capitalism, as it has been practiced in the United States on the federal level, works as a racial project that une- unevenly distributes resources across racial lines. So how does our understanding of the Republican Party change if we start with the fact that their economic policy is a racial project? Um, now, uh, there would also, you know, so the re- this would kind of, you know, it would it would include, you know, legal studies uh, in critical race theory, uh, in terms of my method, you know, sociological research on racial stratification and the, the racial wealth gap, uh, racial discrimination in the housing market, racial inequality in education and healthcare. Um, also, of course, scholarship on the political economy of neoliberal capitalism. Um, there would also be some discussion on the ways in which the Republican Party is trying to undermine the notion of multiracial democracy by trying to stop Black people from voting. Um, I would bring in Carol Anderson's research documenting the Republican Party's voter suppression tactics. Um, yeah, she, she's an amazing scholar. Um, she, <laughs> GOP leaders, you know, they, they know that the country is getting more racially diverse, right? So so how does a Republican party that gets most of its support from conservative white people continue to compete when the demographics are changing? Well, one way is to make it harder for working class people of color to vote, right? To restrict democracy, you know? And another way is to change the rules and gerrymander the system so that minority rule can be a reality. Um, I really think that the democratic system is broken when Brett Kavanaugh can be appointed onto the Supreme Court by Republican senators who only represent 44% of the American population, you know? And this, the system is broken when Donald Trump can win the election while losing the popular vote by three by almost 3 million votes, right? And um, these kinds of situations really worry scholars like us because we've studied apartheid, right? And we know what white minority rule can look like, you know? Um, so, um, you know, uh, it's, you know, it can be really ugly. It's hateful and, and indefensible, you know. Um, so this book would establish two undeniable facts uh, that, you know, entrenched racial privilege is the stark, you know, is a stark reality in this country and we've never been a meritocracy. And then secondly, the modern Republican Party is a white nationalist political party. Um, that book would be you know, the largest contribution I could make as an anti-racist scholar who is trying to advocate for racial equality. So, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I have to decide which is more important to me, you know, documenting the brilliance of actual Afro-diasporic oral traditions or calling out the racism in the post-civil rights era and describing it as it is. And, you know, um, so, uh, so, yeah, I just want to end by saying, you know, thank you, you know, and, you know, we, you know, anti-racist and intersectional scholars, you know, we're part of a multi-generational movement to create a more equal world. That's how I understand things. And we stand on the backs of scholars and activists who came before us. And hopefully, you know, people who come after us will find our scholarship to be useful. So thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Um, And yeah, it was great, really great to do this. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think that we need both of those books. We need books about the diaspora fighting back. And then we also need books that um, are keeping a tab on how white supremacy is changing uh, throughout the 21st century. So Mm -hmm. I wish you good luck in both of those endeavors. And uh, Dr. Thelwell, I want to thank you for being on the show today and for speaking with us about exporting Jim Crow, blackface minstrelsy in South Africa and beyond. Thank you so much.